Good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. We also have that text printed in the back of your bulletin. Uh, Lord willing, over the next several weeks, we're going to finish our study through the book of Exodus that we actually began last year. And let me encourage you to bring your Bibles with you during the study. We're going to be looking at some long portions of Scripture that will not fit in your bulletin over the next few weeks. So it would be great to have your Bible with you. Uh, Let me also encourage you to read ahead. We print the upcoming sermon in the bulletin so that you can read ahead. That is a great way to prepare your heart to receive God's Word. Uh, So please follow along as I start reading in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord and the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't come up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, Be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from a ram's horn, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. At the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves, so the Lord will break out in anger against them. Moses responded to the Lord, People cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Let's pray. Father, what an amazing thing it is that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you speak to us as you spoke to the people of Israel. Father, so we pray that we come this morning in humbleness that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It felt like the heavens had cracked open and the world exploded inside my ear. I've never heard a louder sound in all my life. If death had a sound, that would be it. It just sounded like being in a hurricane, basically. A hot hurricane. The car, house, earth, everything was shaking. Then came a deafening sound of sulfur ash rain, pebbles, ash, and dust. It literally feels like an apocalyptic horror movie, but worse, much worse. Friends, what I just read to you are several first-hand accounts from those who have lived through a volcanic eruption. I give you those quotes because a volcano erupting seems to be the closest parallel, closest natural parallel to what Israel experienced at Mount Sinai as they encountered the Lord Almighty. There was thunder and lightning. There was smoke covering the mountain, and it shook violently. And just imagine that scene for a moment. Picture yourselves there at the foot of that mountain. And as you're picturing that scene, ask yourself, have you ever stopped to think about the fearful majesty of the Lord? Have you stopped to think about the greatness of his power and his might? Have you ever thought about what it means for God to be holy and what his holiness means for your own life? Brothers and sisters, the Israelites were given a clear visual and physical representation of these things as they came to Mount Sinai. But these things have been written down for your instruction, that you may know what they saw and what they heard and what they felt. In these verses, we see that God is fearful and glorious in holiness. But against the backdrop of his holy splendor, his grace stands out all the more. The main idea of these verses, and therefore this sermon this morning, is that our holy God, our holy God graciously calls sinful people into relationship with him and commissions them for his service. Our holy God graciously calls sinful people into relationship with him and commissions them for his service. I have three points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is God's gracious call. It's going to be from verses 1 through 8, God's gracious call. The second, God's unapproachable holiness. That will be verses 9 through 15. And then finally, God's fearful judgment. That will be verses 16 through 25. But first, God's gracious call. The first half of the book of Exodus tells of God's amazing work of salvation, his amazing work of redemption, in which he redeemed the people of Israel from their hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, their hundreds of years of suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. God rescued and redeemed his people through a series of amazing signs and wonders, a series of, of plagues that he inflicted on Egypt that eventually led Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
to drive the people of Israel out of his country. But just as soon as Pharaoh drove the Israelites out of Egypt, he changed his mind and he chased after them with his army, trapping them at the Red Sea, only for God to miraculously deliver his people through the sea by dividing the waters and letting them walk through on dry ground, but then bringing the waters back to drown the armies of Egypt who chased after them. Well, God did all of this that his people might come to know him, that they might know his name and his character, and so that his name and his glory and his power and his holiness might not just be known among the people of Israel, but might be known among the nations. Well, after their deliverance through the Red Sea, the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for three months before coming to Mount Sinai. During that time of wondering that we looked at just a few months ago, the people of Israel often complained about the hardships they faced, a lack of food and a lack of water. But every time they complained, God was gracious to them, and he miraculously provided for their needs. He brought water forth from the rock. He provided manna from heaven. After three months of wondering, after three months of the Lord's provision, They came to Mount Sinai just as God promised Moses they would all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. When the Israelites come to to Mount Sinai to worship, to, to meet God, to hear from him, to receive his law, it is really at Mount Sinai that God begins to form the people of Israel into his people. He teaches them who he is. He gives them his laws to instruct them on how they are to relate to him, but also how they are to relate to one another, to govern their life as a nation. Well, the people of Israel will spend a year or nearly a year at Mount Sinai. It covers Exodus 19 in the Bible all the way through Numbers chapter 10. And during that time, Moses will go up on the mountain seven times to commune with the Lord to hear from him, to receive the word from the Lord for the people. And we find the first three of his trips up the mountain here in chapter 19. As we see in verses 4 through 6, it's during Moses' first trip up the mountain that God speaks. And the words that the Lord speak in verses 4 through 6 are some of the most important words in the life of Israel. They're some of the most important words in the entire Bible. The the Lord initiates a covenant with his people, Israel. Now, if if you know the Bible, you know that covenants are foundational to God's relationship with his people throughout the Bible. By this point, he has already made a covenant with Noah. He's made a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Israel here. He will go on to make a covenant with King David. And most significantly for us, God has now made a new covenant with his people through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a new covenant people. You are in a covenant relationship with God. Well, one theologian defined a covenant this way. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. So in that way, a covenant is similar to a contract, what we might think of as a contract, except for these promises and commitments 
are made in the context of a relationship. They solidify and uh, establish and set the terms of a relationship. So we think of the covenant of marriage, for instance. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard marriage described as a covenant. Well, it is. Two people are making binding promises and commitments to one another to set out the terms of their relationship with one another. But I want you to, to note here from these verses, from Exodus chapter 19, that the foundation of God's covenant with the people of Israel is grace. Now, this is how theologian Tom Schreiner puts it. Before God established his covenant with Israel, he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and adopted Israel as his people, freeing them to be his people. The Lord does not begin with a demand that Israel observe these commands in order to be his people. Quite the contrary. Israel has done nothing to deserve the Lord's favor, and yet he rescued them from slavery, and only after has he bestowed such grace and mercy did he give them commands. His grace and his mercy precede and undergird his demands. Look at verse 4. God begins by reminding the people of Israel of everything that he has done for them, that he has brought them out of the land of Egypt, that he has carried them on eagles' wings, and that he has already brought them to himself. Israel has done nothing to achieve their salvation. Their status as God's people was already set, and it was not achieved through their own efforts. It was not achieved through their own obedience. It came only by God's grace. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, have seen the pictures of those boats full of migrants who are fleeing from their home countries. They're trying to, to cross the Mediterranean Sea for the hope of a better life somewhere, usually in Europe. Imagine for a moment that Italy or Greece or, or one of those countries to which these migrants often try to flee for where, where their boats are generally headed, well, imagine that one of those countries, instead of waiting for the migrants to arrive, sent one of their own ships, one of their nice ships, over the Mediterranean to, to pick up anybody who wanted to come in their home country and safely transport them back across the Mediterranean. They offer free and safe transport to anyone who wants to come with no questions asked. And then, once they've safely taken them across the sea, they, they say something like this. We've rescued you from your difficult life back home, and we brought you to our country. And we are freely offering you citizenship in our country. We're freely offering you jobs in our country. Now, all we're asking is for you to enjoy these privileges of citizenship, is that you obey our laws. Well, these migrants would have done nothing to deserve the offer of citizenship. It would have been graciously given to them. They would just commit to obey the laws of the country to which they have migrated in order to enjoy the ongoing blessings of citizenship. Well, friends, this is something like what God did for the people of Israel. Their obedience was not the means by which they earned their salvation. Their obedience was not the means by which they were to become the people of God. They were already the people of God. God had already redeemed them from Egypt. Their obedience was to be their grateful and their willing response to what God had already done. God's covenant 
God's covenant simply laid out the terms by which Israel could enjoy the blessings of relationship with the Lord. To live under God's rule, brothers and sisters, is to enjoy his blessing. Well, Exodus is a picture of our own salvation. We saw that a lot through our journey through Exodus to this point. The Bible makes it clear that the Exodus is a picture of our salvation from sin, our freedom from our slavery to sin. So this order of events here that we find in Exodus 19 is important for you to understand because it is likewise not your own obedience by which you earn God's favor. It is not your own goodness by which you earn salvation. No, salvation is a gracious gift of God. And you're called to respond to that gift with humble and grateful obedience. To respond to the love that God has already bestowed on you in Christ. Christian, consider the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Christian, you were saved by grace. You were saved for good works. By grace. Four good works. Verses 5 and 6 here in Exodus chapter 19 provide something of Israel's mission statement as the people of God. Their marching orders, what they were supposed to do as God's people. They had been called out of service to Pharaoh in Egypt and into the service of the Lord Almighty. So Israel was to be his special treasured possession out of all the earth. They were to be his holy and his elect people. And their purpose was to live under God's good authority by living under God's good authority to demonstrate to the other peoples of the world, the other nations, the blessings of living in relationship with the Lord. This is what it means for them to be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. Well, priests, as we will see later in Exodus, they are given the role of ministering on behalf of the people. That's the role of priests in the nation of Israel. They represent God to the people, and they facilitate people's relationship with God. Well, in a similar way, the nation of Israel was to represent God to the other nations of the world. So Israel was not a kingdom with priests, though that's true. There will be priests in Israel, but that's not what God says here. They're not a kingdom with priests. They're a kingdom of priests. Every Israelite had a role to play by their obedience to the Lord, by the way they lived. They were to communicate God's goodness and the blessings of living under his rule. Brothers and sisters, that is why they were to be a holy nation, In other words, a nation set apart. Now, this helps explain many of the laws that God goes on to give the nation of Israel, laws that we have a hard time understanding sometime. So they were prohibited from eating certain things, like pork, for instance, that the nations around them could eat. Now, that's not because there was anything bad about pork. Sometimes God outlaws things that are immoral and bad. That's not why he outlaws things like pork. 
He did it in order to distinguish the nation of Israel, to set them apart from the surrounding nations, to make it clear that they were a nation set apart from those around them. And so if the people of Israel did live holy lives, lives that were set apart to the Lord, God promised his blessings to the people. That's what we see in the covenant. And as God would bless them as they lived under his rule and authority, it would invite other people into relationship with him. The other nations were to be attracted to Israel. Just as migrants leave their own countries for a better life somewhere else, God intended the other nations surrounding Israel to look at that nation, to see the blessings of living under God's rule and authority so that they would desire to live under his rule and authority as well. They would say, you know what? I want to be an Israelite. I want to follow their God. We've already seen this happen a little bit. Remember, a mixed multitude had come out of Egypt. It seems that some Egyptians had said, we're with those guys. We're leaving Egypt. We're going with the Israelites. Well, that was supposed to happen on a grand scale as Israel lived under the rule and authority of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the same commission that God has given the church today. Recall those words that Shilpa read from us from 1 Peter 2. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we thought about a moment ago, the people of God are no longer a nation, but a people from every tribe and tongue and people. It is the church of the living God. The old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, which we will be studying for the next few weeks, has passed away. It has been superseded by the new covenant. Though we were once not God's people, Gentiles, those estranged from the promises of Israel, we have now become God's people, children of Abraham, through God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And therefore, church, it is now the church who is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Brothers and sisters, what does that mean for you? It means like Israel, you are to communicate the goodness of the Lord and the blessings of his salvation to those who are not God's people, to those who are lost, to those who are not living under his rule and authority. Peter actually writes there in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the reason you are God's people is so that you can proclaim the praises of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's a role given to all Christians. We are to proclaim the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But how do we do this? Well, one way is by living a holy life set apart to God. By obeying his commands. By honoring him in your conduct so that your good works might give glory to your heavenly Father. Church, you have been saved by grace. You have been saved for good 
works. But you're also to proclaim his praises by sharing the good news of the gospel with others. You're to share the good news that Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And that he was raised three days later that all who repent and believe might have eternal life in him. Church, you are called to go into the world to proclaim the goodness of God and his greatness and his salvation so that you might invite others into relationship with him. The church is a people for God's own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. After Moses receives this word from the Lord, he brings the message back down to the people. And we see in verse 8 that the people then commit themselves to the terms of the covenant. They promise the Lord that they will indeed obey. However, despite this promise, despite the fact that the people of Israel are God's special possession and are entering into covenant with him, they still find themselves separated from the Lord, unable to fully draw near to him. So that brings us to the second point of the sermon, God's unapproachable holiness. It'll be verses 9 through 15. Now for much of Exodus, for much of Exodus, it is through Moses that God chooses to, to speak to the people. And it's through Moses then that the people can hear from God. There's some exceptions to this. We're going to see one next week. But that's generally how it works. It was only Moses here who could ascend the mountain. And since that is the case, the people need to learn to trust Moses. For that reason, in verse 9, God told Moses he would speak to him audibly, where all the people of Israel would be able to hear that God is speaking to Moses. So there would be no mistake that the words that Moses spoke came from the Lord himself. Moses didn't go hide himself in a cave somewhere, scribble down some words, and just come down to the people of Israel. They heard, at least some of the time, the Lord speaking audibly to Moses. Well, as for the people themselves, though, they were not even permitted to approach or touch the base of the mountain until they were summoned by God. Well, Mount Sinai represented the place of God's presence, Both here, we see it used that way throughout the Old Testament particularly. It is the place of God's presence. Here it is where God said that he would visibly come down three days later in the form of a cloud for all the people to see. But until that day, the people were not even to approach the mountain. If they did, they would die. In fact, God in his kindness told Moses to set up boundaries around the mountain so that people and the flocks and the herds would not go near. It's like as we as parents set up like a boundary around a fire that we might create. At fireplaces, we have grates to keep kids away. That's something like what is going on here. But what is the reason for all this? Why are all these boundaries set up? Why could the people not approach the mountain? Well, it's because even though God saved his people from Egypt, though he was entering into covenant with them, Though they were his treasured possession, the problem of sin remained. The sin of the people still separated them from their holy God. God is holy. God is set apart. 
He is above us. He is greater than us. He is wholly different from us. God is holy. He is set apart. But holiness also carries the idea of purity and perfection. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He contains only what is right and good. He is the definition of what is right and good. He is completely pure, and therefore evil cannot dwell with him. For that reason, the sin of the Israelites separated them from the presence of God, just like our sin separates us from God. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, remember the consequence, or one of the consequences, for their sin. Well, they were kicked out from the Garden of Eden, where God had walked with them and talked with them. God placed a cherubim to guard the garden so they could not go back to the place of his presence. They were cast out of the presence of God because of their sin. So one of the great questions of the Bible, then, is this. Well, if God is holy, if God cannot dwell with sin, how is it possible for sinful people to dwell with a holy God? Or how could a holy God ever dwell with a sinful people? How could we be his? If our sin separates us from God, how could we ever draw near? Well, the ultimate answer to that question is Jesus Christ. That is where Exodus 19 is pointing us, as we will see. But we see here in Exodus 19 that in his grace, God did provide a way for his presence to be with his people, but in a very limited way. The people must keep their distance until they are summoned by the Lord, by the ram's horn. And even then, they are not to go beyond the foot of the mountain. I love how one Bible scholar put it. He wrote this. The days of preparation leading up to the third day imposed a discipline which required the people to keep the idea of holiness in the forefront of their minds. Living as they were at the foot of the mountain, imagine the constant anxiety of parents lest their children thoughtlessly violate the bounds that have been set. Imagine how the shepherds must have watched the grazing of their beasts, lest they lose valuable animals. Not only must the people have constantly been aware of God's holiness, but they also had to accept their own position as unworthy to approach him and acknowledge the peril with which holiness threatened the unworthy. Brothers and sisters, God is fearful in holiness. The people would only be allowed to approach God's dwelling place at his invitation and according to his instruction. Look at verse 10. In preparation for approaching the mountain, God commanded Moses to consecrate the people, which means they were to in some way be set apart for the service of God. It's not entirely clear here what was involved in their consecration. It may have involved a sacrifice to atone for their sins. God also commanded the Israelites to wash their clothes, likely a sign of of ritual cleanliness, something symbolizing the purity of heart that was required of God's people. I think this is the same reason Moses told them to abstain from sexual relations in verse 15. Wasn't anything sinful about sexual relations between husband and wife? They were to abstain for a period of time as a sign of purifying themselves before the Lord and setting themselves apart for his service. 
the people could only approach God's presence at his invitation and according to his instructions. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. God cares very deeply how he is worshipped. In general, I think our generation or our age is probably more casual than the one that came before it. People dress more casually for work than they used to. In general, they dress more casually for church than they used to. People are generally more laid back about forms and, and protocols than they used to be. Now, I don't want for a moment to argue that God commands what you should wear when you come to church. I don't think that he does. Uh, There are certain things that I think would be clearly out of bounds, but I think we would be legalistic if we had a dress code for church. I don't think I've ever preached here in a suit, to be honest. I'm not wearing a suit today. However, that being said, we need to be careful, very careful, at the casualness of our dress, And the casualness of our generation does not get translated into a casualness of our hearts as we come before the Lord. The Lord may not look on outward appearance. The Lord does not look on outward appearance, but he certainly cares about the sincerity and the reverence of your heart. Even those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ should not approach God casually or irreverently. We are coming before the Lord who is fearful in holiness. And we should come to him in reverence and awe. We can come to him as a friend because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We should give him the respect that he deserves. We should approach his word with reverence and awe. And I say this as one who is often guilty of being distracted by my phone. Or the task of my day as I come before the Lord in prayer and as I come to his word in the morning. We should not treat our time with the Lord casually. And do not be fooled into thinking it is okay for you to harbor sin in your heart when you come before the Lord. There is a reason that we have a time of confession in our service. There is a reason that you should have a time of confession in your own prayers before the Lord. The Bible warns strongly against harboring sin in your heart when you come to the Lord. Now look, we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been cleansed from our sin. We have been cleansed from the sins that we know about and the sins we do not know about. But the Lord is fearful in holiness. And we should come before him with the reverence and the awe that he deserves. But even with all the preparations that God commanded here in Exodus 19, the people would still only be permitted to come to the base of the mountain. Separation remained because sin remained. Remember those words from Psalm 24 that we read earlier in the service. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Friends, sin was not just a problem for the Israelites. It is a problem for all of us. None of us have clean hands. None of us have a pure heart. All of us have sinned. None of us are eligible to stand in God's holy place on our own. How then can we enter into the presence of God? How can a sinful people... How can you dwell 
with a holy God? How can you have relationship with him? And that takes us to the third and final point of the sermon. And that is God's fearful judgment. It's going to be verses 16 through 25. But when the third day arrived, God descended on the mountain and the people woke up to thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain. Just look again at verse 18. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. They wake up and the mountain is enveloped in fire and smoke. The ground is shaking violently. The mountain is shaking violently. Again, just imagine that scene for a moment. Picture that scene. And instead of fleeing from the mountain as people do when a volcano erupts, the people were summoned to the mountain. They were called to come near to this terrifying spectacle. It is no wonder they shuddered when that ram's horn blew. And as they drew nearer, the horn just blew louder and louder. It was like a a movie where the music just builds and builds in a suspenseful scene. It gets louder and louder. You get more tense and and more tense. Because the presence of the Lord had come down on the mountain. And he had come down in this way to communicate his holiness and his greatness. To communicate his fearful presence to his people. In the middle of this terrifying spectacle, God spoke to Moses from the thunder and summoned him up the mountain in the middle of the fire and the smoke and the thunder and the lightning. And God repeated his warnings to the people that they must stay away, emphasizing the importance of those commands that he had already given to Moses. He warned that even the the priest of Israel, so Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, but they also had people specifically designated as priests. And even those people... Though they could come nearer than the people, had to consecrate themselves, and they could not come as close as Moses and Aaron. It was Moses and Aaron alone who could come to the top of the mountain into God's presence. As we'll see later in Exodus, the tabernacle is structured in a similar way. It's only the high priest who can go into the most holy place of the tabernacle. The priest can go into the holy place, not the most holy place. And the people can only be in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Separation remains because sin remains. And the penalty for breaking the Lord's command was death. Notice the Lord said twice that if the people broke through the barriers, he would break out in anger against them. Now, often when people like kings or presidents or sheikhs speak, really important people, they will do so from behind a barrier. But that is so that they will be protected from the crowd, from some lunatic who might want to harm them. But not so with the barriers that God commanded to be established. They were there to protect the people from God. To disobey God or to come into his presence uninvited and unclean would invite his anger and his wrath and his judgment. This was a clear warning to the people of Israel about the consequences of disobeying the terms of the covenant. It would bring judgment and it would bring death. So again, the question is, how then could the people have a relationship with God if they could not even go beyond the foot of the mountain? As we've already kind of seen, the solution was a mediator. 
a go-between, someone to bridge the divide, God would speak to the people through Moses. He elected a mediator to be a go-between between the people and the Lord. He was to represent God to the people. He was to represent the people to God. We see him taking God's words to the people, the people's words to God. Now, this was not because Moses was perfect. He did not get to experience the full presence of the Lord either. Even at the top of the mountain, God's full glory was obscured in the cloud. But through Moses, the people could have relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, the truth that I want you to see this morning, the truth that you need to see if you're going to rightly understand the Bible, is that Moses ultimately pointed to a greater mediator to come. The only one who could truly bring people to God. Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Brothers and sisters, we do not need priests to act as our mediators. We do not need anyone else to act as our mediators between God and us. Because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Moses brought God's word to the people, but Jesus is the word made flesh. The people of Israel were called to trust in the words that Moses brought to them because they came from the Lord. But in a much greater way, we are called to trust in the words of Jesus because he has come from God. He is God himself, God incarnate. John 5, 24, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, you need to know that your sin has separated you from your creator God. It has separated you from the God who has created you, who has breathed life into you. But God invites anyone to draw near to him who repents of their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ, who is the one and only mediator between God and man. He invites anyone who listens to Jesus, who trusts Jesus and his word, to draw near to him through repentance and faith. Church, the truth is, because of our sin, none of us can ascend the mountain of God. We cannot draw near. No, God must come to us. This is what he did at Mount Sinai. He came down. He condescended to meet with his people. And friends, this is what God did in Jesus Christ. We could not go to God, so God came down to us in the form of Jesus Christ. And Christian, it is Jesus who has brought us near to God through his blood. He did this because he took on flesh and became our representative to God, our mediator. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. We do not have clean hands and a pure heart, but Jesus did. He never violated the words of the Lord. Therefore, he could stand in our place and offer his body as a sacrifice in our place on the cross. And because Jesus willingly stood in our place at the cross, God's fearful anger and his wrath and his judgment will not break out on us because it broke out on Jesus instead. God gave Moses the task of consecrating the people of Israel but he was still only able to bring them to the base of the mountain. He could not take away their sin. Separation remained. 
But church, Jesus has brought us all the way to God because he took away our sin at the cross. And so when you repent and when you place your faith in him, you are given clean hands and a pure heart because you are given his righteousness. Jesus takes your sin and he gives you his clean hands and his pure heart that you might stand in the presence of God for all eternity. Therefore, you can now draw near to God without fear and find mercy and grace and help in time of need. God has given you his spirit to dwell continually with you. The curtain, the curtain we haven't even come to in the story yet, has been torn in two. The barrier separating you from God has been torn down by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And therefore, all of God's people look forward to the day promised in Revelation 21, when God will make his dwelling with his people forever. It will be a return to the Garden of Eden, but it will be even better. God will be with us. He will be our God, and we will be his treasured possession forever. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Praise be to God. But church, though it is God's grace that brings you near through Jesus Christ, And though you have been made God's treasured possession by his grace, do not forget that you have been saved by grace. You have been saved for good works. God has made a new covenant with his people. Like the covenant with Israel, that covenant comes with demands. You are to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Therefore, brothers and sisters, give God praise for his grace that you have been brought near. This is not your own doing. It is the grace of God. But because you have been brought near, serve him with reverence and awe. Let's pray.